Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. I'm sitting here with Simran Jeet Singh. Simran is a writer, an activist, an educator. Uh, he's one of the most visible Sikh activists in the United States. Um, he's also a professor here at Columbia University, where we are at. And uh, without further ado, here's Simran. How's it going, man? Good, good. Thank you for having me. All right, so I guess we'll get right into it. And normally start these podcasts by just asking how people grew up in the United States. Um, Because I think everyone has a unique story, either whether they immigrated here or um, they're kind of first generation. So what was it like to grow up in the United States? Yeah, uh, my parents moved here in the 70s. Um, My dad came as an engineer and moved to San Antonio, Texas, uh, of all places. And uh, and when he moved there, there weren't many sick families there uh, at all. We were the only family there uh, who kept the identity of the stars. And um, I think for him and my mom... For, for, for my dad and my mom, it was really important that we uh, stay connected with our Sikhi somehow. Um, and the way that they imagined it particularly was through language and through Kirtan. So we didn't we didn't learn English growing up. Oh, wow. um, so it was like Punjabi only at all times. Yep. And uh, and we started learning Kirtan from a really young age. And, and we didn't have a Gurdwara then. Uh, it didn't come for uh, more than probably like 20 years after I was born. Uh, so we used to do Kirtan at this people's homes. This was the homes. 80s? This was the 80s, yeah. yeah. I was born in 84. So we did Kirtan at people's homes. Um, and, you know, we didn't have any Gyanis or Granthis or anything like that. So we learned everything from a young age. How to, um, you know, how do you do Ardas? How do yeah. you read Hukam Nama? Stuff like that. Um, so I think that that was like a really important aspect of our childhood. I mean, like, it's really interesting to think about, like, you could think about being in a desert situation like that. I mean, like being isolated from other six and thinking that you have no chance to, to retain your heritage. Um, but I think what I learned from my parents is if if it's a priority for you, then then you can make it happen. You just have to put in the work. Yeah. I'm really grateful to my parents for that. Yeah. And, um, there must've been a lot of community building because you were, it was, it was so tight knit. Is that fair to say? Yeah, exactly. It was small. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, you know, I didn't really go, to, like, we didn't have any Sikhs in our schools. There were so few Punjabis generally in, in the entire area, South Asians even, yeah. um, that we would see each other on Friday nights. We would do Kirtan programs, and then we'd try and do Sunday mornings, too. So we, we'd kind of, like, see each other then. But yeah. otherwise, it was like, so that group was tight and, like, still tight with a lot of those people uh, yeah. who I grew up with. Um, but also, like, it meant that day-to-day, like, at school or basketball team or soccer practice or whatever like most of my friends weren't sick and so like I had this kind of I wouldn't say it was like a double identity like I didn't Mm -hmm. feel like I was fractured in any way Um, but it was definitely like living in two different worlds with two different groups of people at the same time yep I totally get that what so how did you you know can you walk me through how you went from growing up in Texas not having any 
or members of our community really around you, having to make this makeshift community to where you are today. Like, because I think you're one of the most visible six, I I said at the top in America in terms of advocacy. Like, how did you, what, what drove you to, 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 to fight on behalf of the community? Um, and how did you get there from where you started? Yeah, I mean, I guess, um, a lot of it has to do with the rootedness within within the community. Like I, um, we didn't have any six rides growing up, but we were going to camps, multiple camps a year yeah. uh, around the country. And so we felt really closely tied to Sikhi. Uh, I think for me, like, you know, we'd always learned Girtan and Bart and all that. Yeah. Um, but I didn't feel emotionally connected to Sikhi until uh, I started learning about recent history. Um, and I remember I was at Houston camp and, and Ruben Virgi, who lives in Maryland still, uh, he was my, the counselor who first introduced this concept to me. I mean, not this concept, this yeah. history, this reality um, of what six had been enduring since the early 1900s to 47, you know, partition to what happened in 84 with Blue Star and uh, the pogroms and in the 80s and 90s. And it, it I mean, it, it was really shocking to me that, you know, I'd, here I was like growing up in America and hearing these kinds of stories about other communities, but I had no idea um, that, <laughs> that, yeah, that, yeah, that, yeah, that there yeah. was our people too. And my own family and like my parents knew and they had actually been pretty politically active. I mean, they named me uh, after a prominent political activist at the time. Um, so like they, they, they cared and they knew, but <clears throat> they were trying to figure out, how to shelter us from it. So anyway, a lot of this was like, where did the emotional connection come from? And like this interest in like politics and engagement, I think it's from there, mm. uh, from this, like, I guess, exposure to community suffering yeah. um, and pain and trauma and trying to figure out like, why does stuff like that happen? And how can we keep it from happening? I think that, that to me was like, when I first started feeling like the, the dart, as, as we mm, as we call it in okay. Punjabi. Yeah. Um, and then I think like um, as I became more emotionally involved, I, I started becoming more spiritual in my own practice as well. Like up until that point, it had kind of been like a collective thing for me, like Girtan mm. and Bach. Like I learned it, but it was for Devan and not for my day to day. But it was in it was around that age that I started. Uh, took Amrit then and all that sort of thing. So like a lot of my mentors, like my sick mentors at the time were just like these incredible people who I watched and they would have this real strong connection to their spirituality and to their history. And then also constantly transfer that somehow into Seva. Mm -hmm. And I kept seeing that everywhere around me. Like my, my parents were like that you know, the, the Gyanis who I studied with growing up, they were like that. Uh, and even like the, I don't know what to call them. They were like, we called them Virgis and Benjis, but like the camp counselor crowd, basically. Yeah. Like the people who I looked up to as like, this is how I want to be in 10, 15 years. Like they were like that. So like having so many models of Seva, I think for me was like, oh, that's, that's the way that I want to live. Like, how do I, how do I live a life of Seva? That's that. That was a question I remember asking myself when I was in college. Yep. You're also a scholar of religion. When when did you realize you wanted to to study different faiths, including your own, 
Um, was it like early? Was it like early on, like, yeah. and when you were an undergrad, or was it before that, or? It was late in undergrad. I mean, I think so. I was a senior in high school when nine eleven happened. Uh, um, and so it was formative for me in that sense. Like yes. I, I was yes. already thinking about what do I do? How do I do Seva? Yeah. Um, but as I saw the community around me, like, um, I think one of the challenges was how do we build community power when we don't have a platform? Yeah. Um, and, and a platform means like there's something, um, powerful and public that we can do, but it also means like a lot of background heavy lifting work. Yeah. Um, so, so the path to scholarship wasn't easy one. Like I spent 10 years in graduate school and it was pretty intense, but to me it felt like, and still feels like at least one way to create, um, enough depth of knowledge and, uh, and feeling within a tradition so that you can then be, um, you can then turn around and, and bring that forward to people. Like my, my research was primarily in the life of Guru Nanak and the mm -hmm. earliest manuscripts of his life. Can you share like how 9-11 shaped your worldview and what you try to do? Because I think for a lot of six, even me, I was only 12 years old. Yeah. When it happened, I mean, it, it shaped my life quite a bit. I mean, yeah. I, I at that point, I'm not really shaping a life. I'm just kind of part of life. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but at the, at the same time, it, it, it impacts you significantly if you're around at that time. Yeah, for sure. I guess um, for me, it was like, there are a few things that happened. One was realizing that identity is not just about how you view yourself. It's also about how others view you. Mm -hmm. Right. So like I didn't have in San Antonio, I didn't have like yeah. sick South Asian Muslim Arab friends. Like yeah. I just didn't have any. Yeah. Um, or I had very few. And most of my friends were black, white, Hispanic. Like that's kind of the breakdown of the city. Yeah. And I started noticing after 9-11 that like people kept grouping me into this other category of like Muslim, Arab, South Asian, yeah. sick. Um, and I was just like, I don't, I don't know any of those people. Like those aren't my people. Yeah. And, and over time I realized actually it doesn't matter if I know them or not. Like that's yeah. how I'm perceived. And so I better make something of that. Mm, and so that, yeah. that to me was like an important formative realization of how the world works that yeah. like, if you don't confront the ways in which you're perceived then then you don't really have any opportunity to shape your own narrative and so so that was one um and then the other one was thinking about how painful it was for our community who had been here for more than a century and 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 the pain of still not being known like be like feeling invisible right like i just growing up it used to be so frustrating for my parents and for us and for everyone I knew that any book you picked up on religion either didn't mention Sikhi yep. or talked about it as a blend of Islam and Hinduism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right? I like how, that, yeah. how, how, I remember that. How frustrating. And yeah, I remember being like in sixth grade or seventh grade all throughout school, really having to correct the the teacher and say, no, 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 this history book is definitely wrong. Right, exactly. And then how much credibility do you have? Because you're like, this, 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 this is in the book. Exactly. You know what I mean? Exactly. No, 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 no I remember that's, that. that's exactly right. And like, yeah. so like, think about how painful it is for a community. And like, I was just sitting there watching us scramble to like, tell our own story and being like, wow, we've, it's been, it's been more than a century and we haven't had the chance to do that yet. Like, what does it take for us to tell our own stories? Yeah. And so that, that's kind of what got the process started for me. And, and because 
I was, it's, this isn't an experience specific to the Sikh community, like the misinformation around uh, South Asians, Hindus, Buddhists, Islam, Arabs, right? It's like racial, it's religious, it's cultural, all this stuff, but there's so much ignorance out there. And because of that, there's so much pain. And so for me, it was like 9-11 shed this light on the collective pain that we have. And like that to me represented an opportunity in a sense of like, here is something that hasn't been done and needs to be done and needs to be done urgently. And so it was kind of like, if I don't like, I I felt a responsibility. Like I, I'm interested in the stuff. I have the privilege to do it. I have an opportunity. Um, and also I enjoy it. Like I like this stuff. So like all that stuff coming together, like it was kind of like a why not moment. Were you you involved in the creation of Sikh coalition? So soon after, 9-11? No. So I was, my, my parents were, mm-hmm. um, I was in high school. And so one of the things I remember my parents doing, so the Sikh coalition would organize these national calls yeah. uh, where people, you know, just like community leaders around the country just hopped on the phone to talk about what was happening and, and to talk about what to do. Yeah. And so my dad was included in those conversations. Um, and he would have us join him on the call and mm-hmm. like, we wouldn't say anything, we were kids, listening. right? Yeah. yeah. But he was like, listen, this is important. And yeah. so, those kinds of experiences to me, like, were huge, not just, you know, the obvious thing is it's huge because it gives you a sense of what's going on. Yeah. But again, like, this idea of modeling for people, like, I think one of the challenges for kids and many of us, even adults, is like, it's so hard to find good models. Like, how do yeah. you live in this world? That's so messy. It's so true. It's I so think hard. It's so true in this era that we live in today. Yeah. Especially. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And so, like... Being on that call gave us a good model of like, hey, this is how you can be active in your community and do seva, right? right. Like this, this will give you information, but it'll also give you like examples of how you can live, and that was super powerful. Right. Mm, interesting. So you go to college, you are interested in helping to find the community based off what happened on nine eleven and simplifying your story, and then you become an academic, and then w- once you became an academic. Most academics just then write papers <laughs> and teach classes. Yeah. What made you interested in being such an active, front-facing advocate? Was it just out of necessity? Uh, because on one hand, you know, your, your community really didn't have like a person that people go to. Mm-hmm. And um, you have kind of taken that mantle in many ways, very, at least very much so on the Internet where people can get credible information on what the community is thinking. How did you, how did you decide to go that route? Because, you know, as a PhD, that is definitely not the traditional path. I mean, I guess there's an easy way of answering that in a a complicated way. And the easy way is to say like, it's just Seva. Mm -hmm. Like, and it's, it's super nice to be sitting here in a room talking with you about it because Mm -hmm. like, I don't even have to explain that. Like, it's like, of course, it's just Seva. Like, there's nothing really more than that. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. You're like, definitely not getting paid for it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. And like, I mean, the, the point is, like, the traditional model of academia yeah. is, like, it's exactly the kind of thing that Guru criticized in, when he met the Siddhas, right? Mm-hmm. Like, in, that he talks about in the Siddhas. Like, if you're not relevant to your community and if you're not reducing people's suffering, then, like, what's the point? Like, right. what's the point of any of this? Like, you can be as spiritual or as powerful or as whatever – like if there's no seva involved, like that's not really love, right? right? That's what we learn in our in our bani. Um, so that's the easy answer. I think the complicated answer, um, and this is like 
this is something I try and impress on people who have the privilege of of stepping away. Like we don't have that privilege. And I, I mean, I feel it pretty heavily. Like when people in your community are dying and like right. family members of yours are living at risk, like yeah. of, of anything happening at any time, just because of ignorance and hate, it doesn't really... It, you don't really have the option of stepping away and being like, yeah. hey, I'm just going to go write these articles or books that are like academic and historical and have nothing to do with our lives today. Right. So like there's there's this real intense again, it goes back to that idea of the yeah. like that feeling of like I care. Right. And because I care, I have to be like I have to be different. Like right. I I had a tenure track job, which is like the academic dream. And I left it because I felt like I needed to be doing more in terms of Seva. Right. In and like just that. being getting very practical about what what needs to get done and doing it. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So like yeah, yeah that's I mean that's that's kind of it for me. Like yeah. it's it really comes back to that idea of Seva. Like it's not necessarily um the traditional or even the most prestigious way of approaching this stuff, but in terms of like what I care about and the people I care about, like this this definitely like feels very uh, important and satisfying in that sense. Got it. So, what do you do day to day? Because I think most people, most people don't, <laughs> most people don't really. Because you're kind of, you kind of like pop up. Uh, I feel like if you're just an average person, you just kind of pop up in people's either news feeds or someone shares something that you've written or posted. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I, some people might know you're a professor, but I don't even. I don't think people even really know what you do. Like, do, do. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I don't even know what I really do. So. <laughs> okay, sense. great. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, okay, so yeah. so most of the time goes towards the kids. We have two yeah. young young yeah. kids at home. So that's – dad is job number one. Um, I teach so – Dad. We should, I should introduce you as dad first. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, dad life. Yeah. <laughs> um, I teach – so I teach now here at Columbia Union Seminary, and mm. I'm teaching a course – uh, this semester on Tibetan Buddhism, but I'll teach, I teach various different religions. Um, I teach, I write. So I have, um, a regular column that I write. I have a podcast. Um, I've had some phenomenal guests on that podcast. Oh yeah. Thank you. That's fun. I see why you do it. It's just like hanging out. It is. What's the (laughs) podcast called? Uh, Spirited. Spirited. Mm -hmm. And people can find it anywhere. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Great. What, like any, can you tell people some of the cool guests that you've had on? Um, yeah, this audience, who would they be interested? Jigmeet Singh was on yep. from Canada. So that was a great conversation. Uh, Rabia Choudhury, uh, who's also Punjabi, yeah. uh, Pakistani side. Um, but she's fantastic. Shannon Watts from Moms Demand Action. Oh, that's cool. Um, yep. yeah, yeah, it was, it's fun. It's a fun yeah. podcast. Yeah. Um, what else? There's a children's book I'm working on that comes out soon called Before Justin Keeps Going. It's yeah. about my running inspiration. I, I met him seven years ago. He's still alive, which is crazy. He's still alive. He's 108 now. Yeah. He's still walking he several was, miles a day. He, he yeah. was over 100 years old when I met him. And when I met him, it was like interacting with like a middle-aged man. Oh, yeah. Like, in terms of his energy levels? His energy levels. And his yeah. ability to just walk. Oh, like, yeah, yeah. Because I was... In my, I'm comparing them to my grandparents, I mean, to in fairness, my grandparents at, at that time they were both very sick, mm-hmm. but there were many decades younger than him. He was just it was it was actually it's very inspiring. Oh yeah, just to see somebody at, at that age being able to have that much life and that much awareness. Do yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah, 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 exactly. And it's also like 
when I started this children's book, I started, I mean, he's, he's always been an inspiration to me. That's how I got into marathoning. Yeah. Um, oh, interesting. So like a special place in my heart. Um, but as I learn more about his story for, to write this book, yeah. because it's a, it's a picture book biography. Um, as I learn more about his story, it's even, it's, oh, he's even yeah. more impressive than I, than I ever imagined. Oh, yeah. And so yeah, it's, it's one of those stories that you, that you're like, man, I couldn't have, if this was a fiction book, I couldn't have made up a better story than. than yeah. To my understanding is that he didn't even, he didn't even start running until he was very old. Until his eighties. Eighties. Yeah. yeah. Very old. Yeah. And also he, he yeah. didn't start walking until he was older. Like he, he had a disability. Oh, he wasn't gosh. able to walk. So then he couldn't go to school because he couldn't walk. And so he never learned to read or write. What? And to this day, he can only write his name. And that's, that's I mean, in the, in the foreword of the book, it has, he writes in the Urdu script. So he has, it has his name for yeah. guessing. And that's the only thing he knows. It, I think it truly should, shows you that you can remake yourself. Yeah. At any, and it's quite literally any age. Yeah. And I think for me, the power of the story is like all these assumptions we have about what our capabilities are. Oh, right. Yeah. Like around not yeah. just disability, but also race, age, yeah. class, you know, geography, like yeah. religion, like all these things playing this. Yeah. Super, super inspiring to me. Yeah. I want to ask you about your remarks in New York. So Simranjit gave some great remarks. Uh, at the mayor's interfaith breakfast, I'll, I'll summarize them, in, but you can please correct me if, I, if I'm saying anything incorrect here. Also, what was great is that you explained what six were to the crowd because I'm confident mm. most people didn't know. Um, <laughs> even though, like you said, most people were very highly educated, sophisticated people. Mm. I think your essence, the essence of the point that you were making about like faux solidarity, where it's solidarity in for show only, mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. effect, and um, not true solidarity mm-hmm. uh, and standing with other communities. And I think there's a very, it's an uncomfortable point because there's a lot of truth to it. Yeah. And in many cases, that breakfast is kind of a, a symbol of that yeah. in, in a way. It doesn't have to be, but it is It is the case. Can you elaborate on that? And what, we, what do we do about it? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think... Um... So I, I make this distinction between what I call performative solidarity and yeah. authentic solidarity. And performative solidarity, as you're describing aptly, is basically just this idea that you, what we call virtue signaling. Yeah. Like you you say you care about something. Yeah. <laughs> you say you care about something yeah. to score social points and like to show your friends, to signal to your friends that, hey, look at me. Yeah. This is what I believe. And like you take a position and you see it, especially with the age of social media. Yeah. Right. Like I announced that I um, am against the Muslim ban. Yeah. Um, and that I think it's preposterous that the president is doing this to Muslims. Yeah. And so I post that on Facebook and then I shut down my computer and then I'm done. And to me, like, yes, that kind of activism is important, but it doesn't actually mean anything necessarily if it's just for the sake of performance. And yeah. like, what does it mean to actually show up for others yeah. and like put yourself at risk? Like that to me is what solidarity looks like. And and what I was saying in my remarks at the breakfast was... Or Funny or Die video is a commentary on that. Also. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it's, it's a good commentary yeah. on that. Um, what I was saying at the breakfast is like, this is one of the true gifts that six can offer the world right now. Yeah, truly. Like you've seen it so many times and I've seen it so many times across the board. Like every time there's been a hate crime that I've either witnessed or worked on through my capacity at the coalition, 
every single time there's like some sense of like humanity, like they recognize that there is some connection between the person. And then even to take it to another level, yeah. when there is an attack on someone who is perceived to be Muslim, like I have not heard a Sikh say, actually, you got the wrong person, get them instead. And and what I was saying in my remarks was like, it would be a lot easier to do that. And people would be Sikhs would be safer if they did that, but right. they just refuse to do it because they know right. it's wrong. Right. And so they're willing to take on more vulnerability right. and put their, their families at risk in order to stand in solidarity with those who are being oppressed. And right. like that to me is like, you don't, you don't see that anywhere else. It's such a beautiful thing. And, right. and there's a lot to take away from that. And then even in the, you know, back in the guru's days, we really did perform authentic solidarity. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think what I'm seeing, I think what I'm seeing from the community is actually quite beautiful that yeah. like six, as yeah. they sort of, reach into their Sikhi and the way that they've been raised to view the world. Like it's not necessarily articulated in the way that we would like in terms of like, they're not books that outline, this is how Sikhi teaches this. And this is how you can bring this into your life. Something that's been like instilled within us as people over generations and across the world, right? right? Like this is something that's continued with the diaspora. So like, What's really interesting to me is like how, how, like, first of all, what a precious value that Sikhi has, that it has this incredible worldview and history. And most of us don't even know how precious it is. It's, it's one of the most, I I think one of the biggest paradoxes of Sikhi for me today. And also like, it's it's become one of my real passions is like there is so much depth and wisdom and practical goodness in Sikh teachings and the the biggest problem is that we don't know how to access them as a community we've we've lost that and so like here's here's a simple example like how angry are people today not just in the states like everyone in the u.s is angry right now they're frustrated with the politics they're angry there's you know rise of hate crimes yeah Yeah, exactly fearful like they're Mm -hmm. with the hate comes fear and like what is the answer to that like there is there's no answer in popular society that we have to the rise of hate and the rise of fear right but gurbani gives us that like that's that's we talk about Nirpo, Nirvar, we talk about Bekka, you know, there's like all these teachings in Sikhi, both in our Bani and in our history, yeah. that give us these models for how do we address these issues that are causing us so much angst in our lives. Right. And like, the thing is, we see it bubble up sometimes in our community, like in a beautiful way, like yeah. the, the example of like sol- authentic solidarity. Yeah. Like it's in our DNA, we know it, but like, we just don't know how to like, reach in and like grab it and like bring it into our lives fully and i think that to me is like that if if we were able to do that as a community like we would be so much better off like we would be we have that richness and it's it's like you have i don't know you have this box of treasures and you don't know how to open it like what good is the box yeah right like we just have to open that box. Yeah. So the the question I have for you, because we, we talked so much about contemporary the contemporary world today, Sikhism today. You studied Guru Nanak deeply in a way that most people have. I mean, most 
young people have it. Mm. I mean, other things about his life that many people don't know that can give people solace today. Like one of the most common misconceptions about Grunanik, and this is something that Sikhs are guilty of as much as anyone else, mm. um, is this vision of him as someone who is exclusively spiritual. Like you hear all the time, people say, well, I'm Guru Nanak Sikh. I'm not Guru Gobind Singh Sikh. And what they mean by that is that there is a perceived bifurcation between like they're not the same person. Right. Right. And Sikhi teaches us that they are, that they carry the same jyot. And so what does that mean? It means that what we've done over time is decoupled this idea of Miri Piri, of like the spirituality and the political yeah. um, and said, you know what? Well, Guru Nanak was beady. He was spiritual and Guru Gobind Singh was meaty. Yeah. He was political. And like, those are two different aspects of our gurus. And if you look at Guru Nanak's life, that's not actually true. Right. Right. And we all know it if we think about it, but we don't actually think about it. Right. That's the problem. We all know that Guru Nanak was politically engaged. He was yeah. socially concerned. Like he was an activist. Right. Right. He confronted very much so. He yeah. confronted Babur, right? The Emperor. Like imagine. Yeah. Imagine like you confronting Trump, Trump today. Yeah. Like as a as a person of power, right? right? Like so let's say you have enough power that Trump pays attention to you and you and you confront him, like how are you going to call that apolitical? Right. Of course it's political. Right. And like you have these I mean the first Saki that I learned about Gurunanik was the Sachasoda Saki. That yeah. his dad gave him money you know, go yeah, do yeah, yeah. a good deal. And he goes and gives it to people who need it. Right. Yeah. That's like social concern. Yeah. Of course it's political. Um, so like we've misled ourselves into thinking like Guru Nanak was this, and, and it's apparent in our images of our good right. that we have now. Mm-hmm. Right. Like we perceive him to be this exclusively spiritual person and he's always been political. Right. And the thing that he teaches, and, and we touched on this before is if you really believe in Ikonkar, if you really think the world is connected right. and you really love the world, of course your impulse will be to do seva, right? Like that's the natural outcome. That's what Sikhi teaches us. And so seva, seva is political. Yeah, It's action. It's action within this world. It's activism. And so I think that is where we sort of fall short sometimes in our thinking of, of Guru Nanak. And, and it's something that I feel really strongly about bringing back to our collective memory of him and not just who he was, but also what he means to us today. Right. Well, you know, what was always interesting to me that I often <clears throat> wonder about, I don't know if you have the answer to this, is that things he was saying at that time were incredibly radical. Mm-hmm. Um, that just, just take one fact, men and women are equal. Very radical thing to say at that time. And at the same time, you know, in Europe, I think Martin Luther was also alive. And, around the same time. You know, yeah. Around the same time. You know, we study Martin Luther as this absolute radical that changed Europe, and he did. That's fair to say. But I think Grunanik's vision was much more um, revolutionary on a social construct of how he viewed the equality and, and oftentimes you say oneness of human beings. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it's surprising to me that nobody in his travels harmed, tried to harm him in the mm-hmm. same way that, you know, Martin Luther's beliefs when they caught fire turned Europe upside down. I'm surprised that someone that had, you know, even further egalitarian views didn't cause more people to be upset at him or try to murder him or cause violence mm. because it was such a an assault on the 
the hierarchy at that time. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? I, do do you yeah. know what was it about him that were, it was able to win people over as opposed to cause tension? Well, I think um, I think his a couple of things I'd say to that. One, yeah. there were people who tried to harm him. Yeah, and what you see in the lives of the gurus is as the bunt begins to accrue more power. Yeah. Um, the tensions increase, right? Yeah. So like when, by the time of Guru Arjan Sahib, yeah. he's martyred. Yeah. And then that continues on through the battles with the next few Gurus yeah. um, and culminates with, you Guru know, Guru, Guru, Guru Big Bahadur, Guru, Guru Gobind Singh, right? Like, yeah. so like it gets, it gets pretty intense then. And yeah. it, it has to do with the challenge of power. Um, but there, there were encounters that Guru Nanak had. And I think one of the things that we learn from his memories the earliest memories we have of him in the Bharat Janam Saki is he had this really I think powerful way of dealing with disagreement yeah. and I, I, I've tried to incorporate it in my own life and like one of the things he did was in our current context in our, in, you know in this neoliberal world the way that we're trying to call out I mean call it call out call, call yeah. out culture the way that we critique is like hey what you're doing is wrong that's right. messed up like you should be canceled and that's it. Right. Like that's how we, that's how, and there's no like next steps. There's no reconciliation. There's no progress. Absolutely wrong. You're wrong and you're out. And like, we're not paying attention anymore. Yeah. Guru Nanak's activism was actually quite different. And I, I really try and bring this into my own work. Um, I find it so refreshing. Like, he would call stuff out that he thought was wrong. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. Like he wouldn't mince words. Yeah. But he would always propose a solution. Yeah. Right. So like, think about this. Like it would have been so easy for him to say, I reject caste. Right. I reject your, you know, yeah. uh, caste is a hierarchy that impinges on the dignity of human beings. Yeah. And so like, it's all wrong. Get out of here. Yeah. But instead what he does is he does that. And then he adds to that institutionalization it's like he creates longer yeah he creates access to scriptures which people didn't have he gives people um food and opportunities for uh creating their own incomes right like all this stuff that's like so i guess what i'm trying to say is he didn't just criticize people right he would always give them opportunities to grow into something else if they accepted his alternative and like some people didn't accept his alternative vision right? right like his own sons didn't Right. But the people who did, they had at least had an they everyone at least had a chance to see what he was offering. Right. Right. And he wasn't afraid to, to engage with people that he disagreed with. Right, exactly. Yeah, that's right. I think that's another thing that we fall trap into today where we almost want people to I keep going back to social media because I think it's kind of messed up our timeline and how quickly things mm-hmm. can happen with people. We expect to like press a button and then the other person <laughs> changes. Do right, you know what right, I mean? exactly. And um it doesn't often work like that, but he engaged people and he was able to change people's minds, truly change people's minds. Yeah. And right. I mean, I think that's important, but I think it's also important to remember, like in some cases he wasn't and that's right. okay too. And like, that's we right. should be okay with it. Like if he yeah. couldn't, right. and if Jesus couldn't change everyone, if Muhammad couldn't change everyone, then like, who do we think we are that like, that's so true. <laughs> that we're gonna, <laughs> that everyone's going to be on our side. No, 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 no. That is so true. Even in those depraved conditions in which they weren't afraid to make change and they weren't afraid to interact with people that they, that were so far away from their vision. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And people who they'd never, they'd never encountered anyone like that right. before, right? Like we encounter a lot more these days because the world is so much smaller. Right. So, yeah. So true. Yeah. So true. I want to ask you about Buddhism because you teach Buddhism at Columbia. Mm. 
what's the most interesting fact about Buddhism <laughs> that many people don't know? One simple fact about Buddhism um, that is worth people knowing is that there is uh, there is no single version of Buddhism, right? Like in Sikhi, for example, you would say like, that's, that's Sikhi. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and in Islam, you would say like, that's Islam, or you might say that's Sunni or Shia. Yeah. Uh, in Buddhism, there are multiple different traditions. Yeah. Uh, Mahayana, you might say, or like early Buddhism, which is sometimes pejoratively referred to as Hinayana. Yeah. Uh, Chan Buddhism or Zen Buddhism, right? Yeah. There's um, uh, Tibetan Buddhism, right? So there are like these different strands of Buddhism. And like, sometimes you might find it to be the case that like a Buddhist who practices one version would like not recognize the Buddhism practiced by someone from another tradition. Oh, and so like it's, it, it can be that uh, different. Is there considered like a pure form of Buddhism that it's kind of like any religion, like yeah. anyone who practices they, version. They, they they, yeah. The they, they have the pure version. Oh, yeah, exactly. Got it, got it. <laughs> <laughs> everyone else is wrong. Got it, got it, got it. Um, I guess then back to my main question, what, what, what advice do you have to young uh, six that are interested in activism? Because you know, even through National Sick Campaign, I have noticed there is, understandably so, an all-time high interest in being an activist. Yeah. Um, how can people either follow your path or do the seva that you articulated in the earlier parts of the podcast? Yeah, I mean, I'd say don't follow my path because I'm lame, but I would yeah. say for um, young people, I, I would say two things. One, like really sincerely, like dip into the well of Sikhi, like personally, like there is so much there that if you can do it in a way that's authentic and personal, like there's, there's a lot to be gained from that for your activism too, but also for yourself. Um, the other thing is to, to just reach out to, uh, people who are doing the work. Like it's a really small community of people. Um, and everyone is passionate about it and cares a lot about, Seba. And so if you're a young person or an older person, you just want to get involved, like just reach out to anyone within this work, like individuals, organizations, and just, um, just connect and offer your support and ask how specifically you can plug into what they're doing. And I think people will be happy to have your support. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And it can make a big impact. I mean, look at Officer Dollywall mm-hmm. uh, in Texas. Mm-hmm. He, he became an officer because he wanted to, in many ways, try to do this similar vision that you had and thought the best way for him to do that in his life was to be an officer mm-hmm. because it gives back to the community and be seen as an authority figure. And he really united that community. And people were proud of him and it made a huge impact. Any other final thoughts? I don't wanna, you have to teach a class here soon, so I'm going <laughs> to... Um. No, this is fun. Yeah, no. thanks for having me on. Yeah, man. I enjoyed it. This is great. I wish I had more time because you you, have, you know a lot of stuff. Random stuff. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> ask, me, ask me about basketball and the Spurs. I'll tell you. Oh, what. yeah, the Spurs. <laughs> Dude, what happened? Do you think they'll ever come back? That was believe my last question. Do you think the Spurs will ever come back? Uh, yeah. I mean, as a Spurs fan, I have to say they've never, they've never gone anywhere. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a tough few years. Hopefully they, hopefully they come back to where they were, but they, they were, you know, know, what's interesting about the Spurs is that they were an all time great team and they had Tim Duncan, all time greatest player. 
but they're just kind of like swept under the basketball history. Bro. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you, do you know? It, it's kind of like six in that sense. Yeah. Yeah. Like, where are we in history? Nobody knows about us. Nobody right. remembers us. Right. But we're the best. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> anyway, ending it on that. Sorry, man. Thank you. All right. Thank All you. Right. Enjoy it. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. If you like the show, please rate and review the podcast on iTunes. Subscribe to Sick Meets World on your favorite podcasting platform and share it with your friends and family. Stay tuned for our next episode, which comes out next month. And of course, be sure to check out the National Sick Campaign website for more information.